chapter 18. So we're, we're, we're making some progress through. Um, we have a ways to go, but I've enjoyed the study. Hopefully it's been helpful to you all. Um, we come tonight to talk about the doctrine of assurance. Assurance of the grace of salvation. And we'll see, uh, you see the outline there, I believe. Uh, this is Joel Beakey's outline on the chapter. I'm, I'm, I'm indebted tonight to him and uh, Dr. Renahan especially. But we continue in this section that we've been in on the experimental aspects of salvation. Now, I know that word sounds odd when we say experimental. Um, we would use the word experiential, but if you read these, these men in their day, they used the word experimental. And so these are the experiential aspects of salvation. Faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, and tonight we're going to talk about assurance. Renahan brings out the point that Perseverance, what we talked about last week, is the, is the outward guarantee that God will preserve and keep all of those that are truly His. It's His bond and pledge to us in the gospel. Assurance is the inward experience of these promises. Assurance is what allows the persevering believer comfort and joy and hope throughout all of the blessings and experiences of life, the ups and downs that we face. So this is a very practical doctrine and experience for the Christian. Right? This is not just some theoretical concept, but it's what we face every single day as Christians. It is the wrestle to have faith and confidence in the promises of God as we live by faith and not by sight, right? And I think we would all testify that there are days and times and seasons where we walk with a, a great measure of assurance, where we have strong confidence in the Lord, and there's times where we lack and we struggle with assurance of faith, assurance of, of God's blessing, of God's promises, right? that they're for us, that He's working within us. And such. And so, why don't we let me pray one more time and just ask God's help here. Our Father, we do pray now, Lord, as we take up this very practical, very important subject of assurance of salvation, we, I trust, want to be those that have a deep, profound assurance in the promises of the gospel and in the work of that gospel within our hearts. And so, we ask God um, in faith that you would help us now that these truths would be sunk deep into our hearts tonight, uh, that you would grow us in faith and in hope and in love of our God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are not going to get through the whole chapter tonight. We're going to look at paragraphs 1 and 2 tonight and and try to understand something of assurance. And then uh, next week will be the more um, experiential application-driven focus of the, of the last two paragraphs. And so firstly, number one is the possibility of assurance. The possibility of assurance. Paragraph one, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So we have three Three things here to consider. Um, False assurance, true assurance, and then it talks a bit about the reality of um, not having true assurance. 
Let me ask you a question. What, what in the world is a temporary believer? Part-time Christian? It's not, a, it's not a, a, a phrase that we often use today, so I just want to throw that out there. What's a temporary believer? I'm seeing the gears getting going there. Yeah, that's, that's a, a wonderful uh, text to consider. Yeah, the first, I think the first is the one that, that has no, falls up on the, on the path. But there's, yes, there are two there that have a, that have a, they grow, they sprout, they germinate, if you will, and they seem to have faith, they respond. And, and it's always struck me, and I, I know I've said this before, but that, that three out of the four respond apparently positively to the gospel when he, the sower is, is sowing that seed. But only one of the four is real, is true faith. And so two of those, yes, they have a faith that doesn't last. And so the question then is, and different Christians may come down different places, different traditions. Are those two, were those real believers? Was that saving faith that they had that was faith for a time? Um, no? Yeah, in our... Un- yeah. Amen? Yeah. Well, no, they, they plucked themselves out of his hand. No. Yeah, if, if you know, for, for those of us that have a doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, we talked about last week, right? We don't believe that once you're in Christ that all of those promises, rewards, benefits, blessings supernatural work that God does to change your nature can be removed, taken away. Um, so there's something there, and we'll talk about it a bit. There's something there, but it's not saving faith. And the next statement kind of gives it away, right, what, they're, what they think. Temporary believers and other unregenerate men. So obviously we're not talking about people that have been born again. Um, but a temporary believer is not, a temporary, that, 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 that exact title is not something we use today, but we get the concept. So let me read some, some quotes here. I think they'll be helpful. They're kind of long, but first one is short. It's from a man named Robert Rollick. And he says, Temporary faith is a knowledge in the mind and an apprehension in the will of Christ with all his benefits, but yet temporary or enduring but for a time. And so you may very well see someone say, I want Jesus. Right? Temporary faith is not its object is Jesus, right? It's not just someone. It's not just some some generic religion, but we're talking about someone that seems to have real repentance, real fruit, that weeps real tears over real sins, right? That seems to have serious conviction. Um, in the experience of that I've had in a ministry like U Turn for Christ, you you see this more often because you see many men cycling through. And many of them have some sort of salvation experience, some sort of response to what Christ is doing and the messages that they're hearing. Um, but at oftentimes, it's very short-lived. Um, another quote here, this is a bit longer from John Owen. He says, A sort of men there are in the world, this is temporary believers, who escape the outward pollution of it. So they escape the outward pollution of the flesh, at least in the, in the worst sense. You know, they seem to be good men, moral men, um, and are clean in their own eyes, though they are never washed from their iniquities, who having been under strong convictions by the power of the law and broken thereby from the course of their sin, attending to the word of the gospel with a temporary faith, do go forth upon a profession of religion and walking with God so far as to have all the linements of true Believers, drawn in their faces, hearing the word gladly, as did Herod, receiving it with joy, as did the stony ground, attending to it with delight, as they did in Ezekiel 33, repenting of former sins, as did Ahab and Judas, until they are reckoned among true believers, as was Judas and those from 1 John chapter 2, where he says they were of us, but they were not, they were among us, but they were not of us, who yet were never united unto Jesus Christ. And so they have all of the outward marks of a true believer for a time, right? You might have many people rejoicing over their their conversion and 
they were baptized into the church and they're partaking of the sacrament and, and, and all of these things that Christians do. Another Westminster uh, divine, Anthony Burgess, says of this that it's a carnal presumption that arises many times from the outward comforts and plenty that they enjoy. And so men look upon their riches, their children, their honors, and so many testimonies of God's love to them. Right? This is God's love. Look how blessed I am. I'm, 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 I have favor with God. And arguments of the reward of their obedience. So they do good things and they believe that their, their obedience is getting rewarded. They're keeping moral commands. Um, because the, the scripture has many temporal promises unto those that walk in God's ways. They finding themselves blessed with such advantages do from thence infer their piety. So they assume because this is going on, God says that it's better to give than to receive and I give well or, or it, the, the word says that children are a gift from the Lord or whatever these temporal benefits are. And men think that that means that God is blessing them and God is giving to them and, and God has saved them, that, they're, that they have a right standing with the Lord. Their thoughts of God in themselves then falsely convince them that they're right with God. And I think we see this in our day in uh, a lot of different ways. Are we good, guys? Is everything cool? Okay. Um, so in our day, we have things like easy believism, right? Christianity that has no real cost, no discipleship, no follow-through, sometimes called cheap grace or decision-based evangelism. Or maybe a prosperity-focused American Christianity that's just about all the things that you can get from Jesus. And men live as if, this is not my language, um, the smile of God is upon them. right? As if they're in the light of the Lord. And, but they've taken no true inward accounting of their sin. right? And thus they're deceived and ultimately only headed to perish. And I think Matthew 7 is a key text that warns us of this very thing. That is, false believers thinking themselves to be right with God. And I think we have to be careful that sometimes the focus is in the church today when people want to talk about having discernment and, ha- and, and that the church is, is... I mean, we know the church is not totally pure. The focus might be on wolves and liars. And, and we certainly should be concerned about wolves and liars. But I think... Personally, and at least in our context, because of the gospel light that's been preached for so many years in evangelical churches, that we have a greater concern for self-deceived false converts who think themselves good. They think themselves okay. You know, the, the, I've told the story of the lady that was, um, was at Planned Parenthood, and she was, not, she was not sending her daughter in there to get an abortion, but she was sending her 14-year-old daughter in there to get birth control. And I was challenging her on that. And she says, I'm a Christian, you blank, blank. Didn't you hear I was listening to, to Caleb when I, when I drove up here? As she smokes a joint and her daughter's inside the, you know, the abortion clinic. But she's listening to Christian music. And so it's just, just this idea that I've, I've identified with Jesus in some shallow way. And so I'm, I'm good with God. You know, there's no accounting. There's no, there's no repentance. There's no reflection of my sin. There's no grief and sorrow. And so there are many that can have assurance that is false, assurance that they should not have. And I fear there are many in churches today that have false assurance that should not believe themselves to be right with God. But because of the poor teaching they have or the, the unwillingness, their hard heart, whatever it might be, various reasons, they think themselves to be in Christ. But on that day they will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. And that's a terrifying Terrifying thing to consider, to think yourself on judgment day to be right with God and to be sent off into condemnation. And so then the confession talks about true assurance for the believer. And there's three things, three foundations that, that are to be present for one to have true assurance. Three things that it mentioned. Let me just read it again. There are temporary believers and other unregenerate men that vainly deceive themselves with false hopes 
and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation. And that hope that is theirs will perish. And if they stay in that state, they will perish. Yet such as truly, now here's the the foundations of true assurance, as truly believe in the Lord Jesus, love Him in sincerity, and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before Him. So the first is a true faith in Jesus Christ. To have assurance, you know, this may feel obvious, but one must have a true faith in the Lord Jesus. You remember chapter 14, uh, we talked about saving faith, and it says there, the principal acts, in paragraph 2, of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ. Right, And so whatever faith is there, it is immediately related to Christ. And it says what this, this principal act is, and it's accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone. Right? This, is, this is saving faith. This is what it means to be a Christian, or the way the Catechism puts it in uh, uh, question 91. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. And so faith is required. True, abiding, actual, living faith in Christ for one to have assurance of salvation. But they also add that there is a love for Christ that is required. Love Him it says they're in sincerity, sincere love, a real love. Listen to Thomas Vincent. He's another Puritan that has a, uh, a commentary on the Shorter Catechism. I think this is a quote is from a sermon. He says, Christians ought to love Christ with, as it says there, sincerity of love. He says, it is a great sin to love Christ with a feigned and hypocritical love. The love of Christians to Christ ought to be sincere in regard of the habit and inward workings of it. They must love Him not only in show, not only in word, not only in outward profession, but their love must be cordial in the heart, and so a love in deed and in truth. And the love of Christians to Christ must be sincere in regard of the object of it. They must love Christ for himself and not chiefly for what they get by him. To love Christ only for temporal gain is hypocritical love. To love Christ chiefly for other gain is not so spiritual. But to love Christ for his own excellencies and perfections is most sincere and generous. This sincerity of love to Christ is everyone's duty. You know, we've talked about maybe in a more modern sense, we've said it this way, that often people love the blessings more than the blesser, right? The focus is more upon what can I get from God? What does he do for me? And really, we want to be careful in our evangelism to not make that all of the focus and all of the aim. Listen to what God wants to do for you. Listen to what God wants to give you. You know, the summons is really there is a, a, a God that you are beholden to and He calls you to worship Him. And He's worthy of, of worship and you've, you've grieved Him. Um, I think of, of Peter's language in 1 Peter 2, 9, where he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And then he says, there's a purpose here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as Christians, whether we stand behind a pulpit or whether we share our faith with our loved one or neighbor, I think it ought to be, the the central aim there ought to be proclaiming the excellencies of God, right? Speaking of the God, the Christ that we love and that we delight in. And so there ought to be. If we want to have assurance of faith, it needs to be built from a sincere love for Christ. Not just what He does, but for Him. And I get, I think it needs to be maybe said, that this is an issue of discipleship and spiritual maturity. Certainly we come to um, 
faith and we're confronted with our sin, we're confronted with, with our guilt, we're confronted with the mercy of God. And so a, a huge part of that is um, what God's going to do, what I need, what, what, what the blessing is of me being forgiven. But, but all of that acknowledgement causes us to look up, amen, and say, look at the God that is, is offering me mercy. Look at the Christ that died on a cross. He loves me this much that he's offering himself to me. And so there's a very much connection to what he does that ought to cause the heart and affections to look to him, his person, and his perfections, his being. And then there is also with this a true pursuit of holiness. The way the confession says it is endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him. You may remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the doctrine of good works. And in paragraph 2 there was a a list of sort of the fruits of good works, the benefits. And it says this, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments, they do many things, but one thing they do is strengthen Christians' assurance. They strengthen Christians' assurance. And so we said there and we say here that that walking in God's ways, in according to God's law, walking by God's commandments, keeping the Ten Commandments as a Christian, by grace through faith, ought to be and is a balm for the soul. When one has a good conscience before God, and you know this, I trust as you experience this, when we have a clean conscience before the Lord, we may experience many troubles, many challenges, many difficulties, But when that most important of all needs is met, my right standing before the Lord, then we can truly say, it is well with my soul. Though the trials, though the billows roll over my head, the breakers, though, Psalm 42, my tears have been my food all night long. When we have a clean conscience before the Lord, we can have that grounded faith and assurance that God is with us and thus God is for us. We read from Hebrews chapter 6. Let me read just a piece of that again in verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And so are you fleeing to refuge in Christ? Are you you running from sin and temptation and all of the things that so easily ensnare us in finding that strong refuge in Jesus, finding that strength in Him? And he says, when we do, and those that have, have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope. We find him to be a strong tower, a place of security and safety, and we have cause to hold fast to that hope, and we have there a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And it says those then that have a true faith in Christ, a true love for Christ, are truly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pursuing holiness, endeavoring to walk in good conscience, may in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. These are precious promises for us. Amen. They are are what we need every day to fight the good fight of faith, to keep our head up when life is is beating us down when the troubles of various things that we face in this fallen world come against us, when our own flesh fails us, when the enemy tempts us, when the world dangles its delights in front of us, when our, our, our best laid plans and, and our hardest work fails and falters, when those that we love betray us and hurt us, when we let down those closest to us, to have these sure, precious promises before our eyes that Christ is for us and with us is exactly what we need day to day. But did you notice the word there two times in that last sentence? It said, may. Those that have faith, have love, 
walk in holiness may certainly be assured and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is, there is a realistic acknowledgement here that we do not all and we do not always experience assurance in the same way. And so we have three possibilities in that section. There is false assurance, there is true assurance, and then there is a lack of true, a true assurance, a searching for true assurance. And then we'll see next the foundation of this assurance. Anyone? Well, let's, then, let's look next at the foundation of assurance. Paragraph 2, we'll spend the rest of our time here. This certainty, and it uses the word certainty, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. Now here's some strong language, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are, children, are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. Does strong assurance in Christ... Make you proud or humble? Humble, right? It grows humility, as it said there at the end. And it grows holiness. The the greater sense of the love, grace, forgiveness of Jesus I have, the, the, the more this ought to bring me to my knees in gratitude, It ought to cause me to look outside of myself. It ought to cause me to grow in praise and worship and dependence. Now, as we talk about the foundation of assurance, we're getting sort of technical here, so let me read something. This is Joel Beakey citing Professor John Murray, a great... Princetonian professor. He says, when we speak of the grounds of assurance, we are thinking of the ways in which a believer comes to entertain this assurance, not the grounds on which his salvation rests. The grounds of salvation are as secure for the person who does not have full assurance as for the person who has. And so all of us in Christ stand on the same solid foundation and grounds of our redemption in Jesus. That is the work of Christ. And however strong or weak your faith may be, that ground that you stand on is not changed, right? You've trusted in Jesus. Your salvation is sure because of His eternal electing love. Now, how you and I feel about that may vary very much. In our day-to-day experience of that may vary very much. So we're not talking about the grounds of our salvation and what that's founded upon, though they're very much connected, but we're speaking of the grounds of our, of our assurance. This is subjective. This is experiential. Right? This is something that, is, that is, is like faith. It's never perfect in this life. And Dr. Beakey breaks this up in two sections First is objective grounds, that is, that is what we're looking to, to have assurance. And then second is the subjective grounds, that is what we experience as we seek to grow and experience our assurance. And so firstly, the objective grounds of assurance is divine truth, the promises of salvation. And he has uh, three observations here. Let me read again in the beginning of paragraph 2. It says, This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. It's not just blindly reaching out in the dark. 
but an infallible assurance of faith because, why? Because it is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. So firstly, as we think about these, the objective ground for our assurance, one cannot have true assurance by only looking inward. You cannot have true assurance by only looking inward at yourself. But you must be focused upon the promises of God. And so assurance is first and foremost found in looking, I quote, to God's faithfulness in Christ as He has revealed His promises in the gospel. And so we do have assurance by looking at the work of Christ within us. That is, that is proper. But that looking inward, that observation of what God is doing, must be first firmly grounded upon the promises of God for us, the objective truth of the gospel that we find in the Word of God. He says here, I believe this is Beaky. He says, by placing the first ground of assurance in the promises of God, paragraph 2 underscores that the believer does not qualify himself in any degree for God's gifts or grace. Unworthy sinners find assurance through spirit-worked faith which believes the gospel, i.e., that God has given His Son to the death of the cross, so that forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life are all free gifts. The same promises of the gospel that led to salvation are also sufficient to lead to assurance. Hey, Noah, have a seat, buddy. Have a seat, buddy. Noah, Noah, have have a seat, please. Mom will be right back. Have a seat. Let me say that again. I think that's helpful. The same promises of the gospel that lead to salvation are also sufficient to lead to assurance. Even when faith is viewed as conditional to the promise, that is, you must believe to have Christ. For when the believer may exercise faith, it is God. Samuel Rutherford says this, who of grace gives the condition of believing and of grace the reward conditioned so that faith binds all the weight upon God only, even in conditional promises. That is, God in His grace gives the condition of believing. Faith is a gift of the Lord. And He also gives the grace of the reward that was conditioned upon the faith. So you can't have Christ unless you believe, and you can't have the rewards and the benefits of Christ unless you believe, but God gives the faith and He gives the rewards for believing. That is, all salvation and all hope of salvation rest upon God's promises in the gospel. And so we cannot just purely look inward, but our assurance must be founded upon the promises of God. Secondly, Beeky says that grounding assurance here in God's promises binds or connects perseverance to assurance. And so we want to connect these two, right? The fact that God will preserve us ought to help our experience of assurance because we have this confident hope in the golden chain of redemption that those that God has foreknown, He will certainly glorify. And as we hold out that promise before our eyes and trust that God will preserve our faith to the end, we, that, that binds with assurance so that we can have an experiential hope in what God is doing, will do, and will fully do on the, on the day of glory. Thirdly, grounding assurance in the promises of God brings to focus the Christ-centered nature of man's assurance of salvation. One author says, Jesus Christ himself is the sum, fountain, seal, and treasury of all of the promises. So we, we, we must always be reminded as we think about any promise of God, any hope that we have in the gospel, that all of those promises are made according to the merit 
and reward of the work of Christ. So our eyes must be firmly planted there. Our hope must be firmly anchored there upon Christ. That's where assurance begins. But there are subjective grounds. There is an experience of these things that will be different for us all. And I think we would testify is different in different seasons of life, in different levels of maturity. It may even be that as a young Christian, one can have greater assurance than, than a Christian down the line because we were ignorant at that time. We didn't think about, you know, you, maybe you had some major sin and you come to Christ and those things are overcome and everything's just great and God has saved me and my life is totally fixed. And then the, the light of the word begins to shine in the crevices of the heart and you begin to understand that you're far more vile than you even knew when you came to Christ. And, and that can be a tough pill to swallow, right? And difficult work of, of sanctification begins. And so there, there is, though, the subjective then experience. And we see firstly then, uh, as we think about, he breaks this down into two sections here. The inward evidence of grace, that is the work of Christ in us, the evidences of regeneration, and then the Spirit's testimony to our spirit. And so I wanna, I'm want to. i following an outline here from a pastor named Jeffrey Smith who um, writes in a, in, a, in a recent commentary on the confession. And he looks at 1 John. Why don't we turn there to 1 John and we'll look at a few texts. You know, some have said there's two ways to look at, at anything really, but there's two ways to look at 1 John. Some might say it's a test to sort of weed out a false Christian, but it's also a, a, a test to grow your assurance in Christ. Not if it speaks negatively of, of you, that is certainly a cause for concern, but if it speaks positively, if you see some of these things that John is, is putting forth in this chapter, in this book, then you can have confidence of the work of God. So he has four, I believe here, four things that are inward evidences of grace that ought to give us assurance, ways that we can, we can have assurance in Christ. What, what, what is the evidence? What are the marks of regeneration? It's another way to say it. There's a lot of things that different men would consider. These are just four. 1 John 1, 6. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so the first one there is that inward evidence of grace is sorrow over sin and an acknowledged need of Christ, a need of forgiveness. And this might, this might be the, the first step of someone coming to saving faith, right? Is a, is a, is an, is a recognition of my sin, my, a recognition of the mercy of God, a recognition of my need of Christ. It's something we should experience once, initially, or always as Christians. Certainly initially and certainly always as we grow there. So a sorrow over sin. Is my mindset of my own sin, has that changed as I've, as I've professed faith in Jesus, as I've walked with the Lord? Children, these are, these are things for you to discern the state of your own soul or to pray about to the Lord. Do I see my sin as ugly before God? 
And do I realize not only that sin's ugly because it causes me to get a spanking or something, but also because it's offense to God. And do I then see that I need God's help because of my sin? I need God's help because of my sin. So that's one of the first marks of grace in our heart, a sorrow over our sin. 1 John 3.9 No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, of course, we need to read this verse in light of the rest of 1 John and the rest of the Bible. John is not saying that a true believer stops sinning. But he used that word practice, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God continues in the same old habitual lifestyle of sinning with no regard, no concern, no conviction. And so secondly, the second inward evidence of grace is repentance. Looking to Christ, but also forsaking that which caused Jesus to be crucified. Maybe that's another way that we can be that we can be helped, boys and girls. Do we see our sin as something that caused Jesus Christ to be crucified? That's a weighty thing to consider. And when we want to walk down that path and continue in that sin, do I do I recognize that I am indulging in the very thing that caused my Lord to be pinned to a tree? So, not only do I see sin as ugly, but do I, do I endeavor to turn away from it? Am I desirous of putting it away? This is a, a ground of, of assurance. Thirdly, 1 John 2, 3. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So you see, there's a negative and there's a positive. There's a seeing sin as ugly and offensive to God and, and as destructive and harmful and foolish and unhelpful, seeing it more and more for what it is. But there's also a positive, new loving of God's commands an esteem for the law of God, an actual desire to please the Lord through my lifestyle. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and what he's certainly there not, he's certainly not meaning there, right, that if you love me, you'll begrudgingly keep my commandments. You'll hate the law, but you'll love me, and so you'll keep my law that you despise. No, we'll love the lawgiver, and thus we'll love the law, because he'll write it on our hearts and cause us to walk in his ways. And so the, an evidence of grace that ought to give us assurance is, do I love your law, O Lord? Like the psalmist cries out. Now, the law convicts us, and the law sometimes slaps us across the face. So that doesn't mean that there's never times where we say, ouch, Lord, your law stings sometimes. Or his correction comes as the scripture uh, illuminates a command in the Bible, and you say, man, not measuring up there. And the Lord brings conviction. But there ought to be some positive even in that, right? That I, I, I really want to do that. Or I want to be that man that you've called me to be, that woman that you want me to be, that, that daughter or son or mother or father. Fourth evidence we see in 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who are the brothers? The body of Christ, right? Now, we can be so, um, you know, inward focused that it's just my holy huddle and I despise those filthy pagans out there, right? That's, that's, is that too far? I think that's too far. It's not what he's saying, right? But there is a real, sincere, new, spirit-wrought love for the body of Christ. And when you talk to the person 
forever and they say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like his people. Or I love Jesus, but I don't have any love for the church. Bunch of hypocrites there, right? This text ought to, to bring some, some illumination to the one that wants to speak in that regard, right? Um, let us not be so arrogant to think that, that all the other followers of Christ are, are, are foolish and weak and we're the only you know, faithful one. Why would I bother with the church? But there ought to be a real love for the body of Christ. A, a, a growing kinship with other believers. And we've all experienced this where, you know, you meet someone who is, who is a stranger to you sitting in the doctor's office or you're sitting in line waiting for some organic vegetables or you're, whatever you're doing. And someone talks about Jesus. You say, well, where do you go to church? And you just hit it off, right? There's just this kinship. There's this, there's this fellowship that... That can happen. And you may be very different. As far as Christian tradition, maybe you know, whatever, that wherever they might be from, theologically, and, 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 and we might have different experiences of worship on the Lord's Day, and different emphases. But if the Spirit of God is there, and if the a love of Christ is there, and a desire to, to know and love and follow the Word is there, then we can have this, this just beautiful kinship. And so the confession is... Is, is testifying that, that our assurance is grounded upon these things happening in our lives. These are the marks of regeneration. These are the evidences of true and saving faith. And if we see them founded upon the promises of God, we ought to have some confidence and hope that God is at work. And then secondly here in this second section on of the subjective grounds is the testimony of the Spirit witnessing to our spirits. And I have three texts there that I want to read. This is a little bit more mysterious, maybe. This is, a, this, this is something that we might, that we could potentially abuse or maybe want it to be more than it is. Our charismatic brothers might tell us that we have too low of a view here, but I disagree. Romans 8.15 is the first text. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians. 4 and 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And again, He uses that language. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And so this spirit of adoption, this spirit ministering to our spirit seems to be connected with the freedom that we have in Christ, the deliverance that we have in Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 2.12. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so the Spirit testifies to us that we are His. That's what the Bible says, right? Benjamin Keach says this. He says, The Spirit witnesseth by a direct act. We, taking hold of Christ... And of the promise, saith the Spirit to the soul, I testify that Christ and eternal life is yours. You believe, and therefore you have Christ and shall be saved. So this is, uh, uh, and, and he's not saying here that, that when you become a Christian, if you didn't hear the Spirit tell you that you are Christ, that you're not a believer. He's not speaking of an audible voice. And so this is mysterious. This is subjective. But what he is saying, trying to, trying to, comment on what the Bible says, 
is that when one truly comes savingly to Christ, there is communion with God. Right? There, is, there is a connection with the Lord. There is spiritual fellowship, and the Spirit testifies to our soul that something has happened. That there's been a change. There's been a transformation. Is that an initial act? Is that subjectively through time? I, I think it's both. As it's ongoing, it is primarily then connected through the Word. The Spirit brings illumination of the Word of God in the heart, confirms and reaffirms to us the promises of God, testifying to us that these promises are true, not just for them or someone, but for me as I stand before God, as I take up His Word, as I pray, the Spirit testifies to me that I am an adopted son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ought not wait for an audible voice and think that if we have not got it, we can't have assurance. I remember someone said to me one time that he, he hears God speak to him, and what he does is he turns the, he has a big stereo, and he turns the stereo up to 11, you know, and some crazy heavy metal music. And in all the noise, it's so intense, he, God comes through there and, and speaks to him. Um, I remember as a Christian trying, how do, I, how do I lay here and sort of get God to tell me something, right? Waiting for a, a voice. And I think that's a, that's a natural thing that we might do, but it can be a discouraging thing when, when it's not found, right? When we don't get a sense of the presence of God, we think that he's not there. And I think over time we learn that God works differently uh, than just giving us a clear writing on the wall. Nonetheless, he communes with his, with his people. Amen? His spirit testifies to our spirit that we are his. And so, there is false assurance, there is true assurance, and there is the lack of true assurance. And I think we're always probably somewhere in the, the second two, or the last two, from true and confident to lacking or trying to find that assurance. And it comes, this assurance comes through the objective gospel promises that are founded upon the righteousness and blood of Christ, but there is also the subjective experience that we have of assurance through the marks of grace at work within us and the testimony of the Spirit working in our hearts. So I want to close with a question today. I've said enough.